Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. So if you remember your beautiful sinusoidal curve of survival and cardiac arrest, the first four minutes are pivotal. We actually need to titrate epinephrine for an end physiological need. He's got to get his little ear things on so we can hear my tummy grumbling. What about, though, the gastric insufflation? What about the gastric insufflation? What about the gastric the gastric insufflation? What about the gastric insufflation? What about the gastric insufflation that's associated with bag valve mask? Right thing to do, easiest thing to do. Fantastic. <laughs> A lot has changed over the years when it comes to managing the adult in cardiac arrest. As a result, survival rates after cardiac arrest have risen steadily over the last decade. With the release of the 2015 American Heart Association guidelines on October 16th, while there aren't a lot of big changes, there's many small but important changes we need to be aware of, and there still remains a lot of controversy. In light of knowing how to provide optimal cardiocerebral resuscitation and improving patient outcomes, in this episode, we'll ask two Canadian co-authors of the guidelines, Dr. Laurie Morrison and Dr. Steve Lynn, some of the most practice-changing and controversial questions. Now, Dr. Morrison is arguably Canada's most important researcher in cardiac arrest. She's a full professor at the University of Toronto, as well as the director of the Collaborative Program in Resuscitation Sciences at U of T. And Dr. Lin is an emergency physician and trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital, a researcher at the Li Ka-Shing Knowledge Institute, and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. So I'll be asking them some burning questions that I've had about cardiac arrest. What's the optimal depth and rate of chest compressions, and how best do we achieve them? How do we best assess cardiac output during our resuscitation? How and when should we be giving epinephrine or vasopressin in the cardiac arrest patient? What's the best way to deal with refractory V-fib? Should we change the way we approach the PEA arrest? In the post-arrest phase, is there any good evidence that we should be using antiarrhythmics? Which patients should go straight to PCI after cardiac arrest? Which patients should be cooled and to what temperature? Plus, if we have time, we've got a practice-changing bonus topic. But more about that at the end of the podcast. So without further ado, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce to you Dr. Lori Morrison and Dr. Steve Lynn. Dr. Morrison, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Lynn, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Now, before we jump into the first case, I just want to quickly run through the main changes in the updated guidelines. So here we go. We're just going to run through them. First, the recommended chest compression rate is 100 to 120 per minute which is updated from at least 100 per minute from the 2010 guidelines. Next, the recommended chest compression depth is 5 to 6 centimeters, or just over 2 inches, but not more than 6 centimeters, because if you go too deep, it can be harmful. They do say that audiovisual devices can be used to optimize CPR quality, and they talk a bit about alternative techniques and devices for CPR, like impedance threshold devices and mechanical chest compression devices. And they generally say that their routine use are not recommended. And there are some specific situations where they might be helpful. They talk about ECMO, which they say may be considered for selective patients with refractory cardiac arrest, where a reversible cause of cardiac arrest is suspected. And when it comes to vasopressin versus epinephrine, they've basically thrown vasopressin out the window, removed it altogether from the algorithm, and they've placed an emphasis on early administration of epinephrine. They mention ultrasound a few times, and they say that ultrasound has been added as an additional method for helping to confirm ROSC and to confirm ET tube placement. When it comes to oxygen, they say we should be using maximum inspired oxygen during CPR, And then after ROSC, we should titrate the oxygen rather than continuing the maximum oxygen delivery. 
In terms of factors to consider in deciding when to stop the code, a low end tidal CO2 in intubated patients after 20 minutes of CPR is associated with a very low likelihood of survival. And this factor should be considered in combination with other factors, so not alone, but in combination with other factors to help determine when to terminate resuscitation. Now, what about antiarrhythmic meds in cardiac arrest? Amiodarone is still recommended for shock-resistant V-fib in the algorithm. When it comes to lidocaine, they say that the routine use of lidocaine after ROSC is not recommended. However, the initiation or continuation of lidocaine may be considered immediately after ROSC for V-fib or pulseless VTAC. In terms of emergency PCI, where we used to only send patients with an obvious STEMI, now they say emergency PCI is recommended not only for patients with a STEMI, but also for hemodynamically or electrically unstable patients without ST elevation for whom a cardiovascular lesion is suspected. And lastly, when it comes to cooling patients, they say that all patients should be cooled and that the physician can choose the exact temperature target between 32 and 36 degrees. So now back to the interview with Dr. Lynn and Dr. Morrison to help you solidify the updated guidelines and gain a deeper understanding as well as practical tips on how to maximize the chances of neurologically intact survival in all the cardiac arrest patients that you resuscitate in your ED. This is very exciting. The ACLS guidelines just came out, and so we've got a lot to talk about. Let's start with the case. A 60-year-old woman rolls into your resuscitation room with ongoing chest compressions and bagging. EMS told you that her husband witnessed her collapsing at home after a family dinner when she complained of chest pain. CPR was started almost immediately by her husband, and her daughter called 911. EMS found the patient to be in PEA. CPR was initiated, epi was given twice, and ROSC was achieved for a few minutes. She lost her pulse just after they offloaded her into the ambulance bay of your ED. It's now 22 minutes post-collapse. Now, before we dive into the nuances of how we'll resuscitate this patient, let's talk a bit about how the general approach to cardiac arrest management has changed recently. We've seen an adjustment from the classic ABCs of resuscitation to the CABs, circulation, airway, breathing, and from CPR to CCR, cardiocerebral resuscitation. We reviewed this way back in our episode number 12 podcast on the 2010 ACLS update, but I think it's important that we discuss it here again. So Dr. Morrison, can you explain to our listeners the justification for this CAB and CCR approach and how it manifests itself in general in the new guidelines? So the rationale comes from experimental evidence, where in the pig and dog labs, they saw a dramatic drop in the rate of achieving ROSC if their hands were off the chest. So you can see it as a precipitous fallout if you take your hands off the chest and do not do compressions. So we have advocated since 2010, chest compressions first. Focus all your energy on continuous chest compressions, not only to optimize the flow of, of oxygen to the heart, but more importantly, the flow of oxygen to the brain. And just to add to that, adult patients who have a cardiac arrest tend not to be a respiratory arrest. And what they really do need is just forward flow. And that's only achieved through chest compressions. Well, it's just interesting. It's that comparison between adult and pediatric, which caused so much controversy in 2010, because the Canadians did not want to support continuous compressions because they were afraid bystanders and lay responders, the first people on the cardiac route, would fail to breathe. And peds, kids need, need oxygen. Right? The cause of their cardiac arrest is a little different, and most of them are respiratory. So the Canadians did not want to de-emphasize the importance of breathing in a cardiac arrest, particularly for kids. But the overwhelming opinion of the scientists when we were forming 2010 and 2015 was that, listen, 
the bystander CPR rates in our countries are so low, anything we can do to increase them will be beneficial. So we weren't to hesitate at all, get people down on their hands and knees, press on the chest, and forget about breathing. Because ALS and BLS will come along and they will do the breathing for you. It won't impair their ability to get down on their hands and knees and do it. Okay, so we've got this 67-year-old woman in cardiac arrest in front of us in the recess bay, and you've asked for two team members to alternate doing chest compressions every two minutes. While you're running the code, you're not quite sure how good the quality of chest compressions are. You remind them to go hard and fast. So let's get into the exact determinants of good quality CPR. There's depth of compressions, rate of compressions, the ratio of compressions to ventilations, and pausing compressions, which will all affect the quality of CPR. First, let's just talk the basics. What's the optimal chest compression depth? So a lot has changed since 2010. There's been more published studies that looked at the depth of CPR and its optimal depth. And now the guidelines have changed to having a depth of 5 centimeters to 6 centimeters, uh, which is more optimal compared to the previous guideline recommendations, which were at least five centimeters. Okay, so that's that's all fine. The numbers sound great if that's the experimental data showing that. But when you're in the emergency department, how the heck do I know if I'm going five centimeters or six centimeters? How, how do you measure that? How do you know whether you're going in adequate depth or you're going too much? On the defibrillator should be a feedback loop. So you can see it visually on the defibrillator. Sometimes they're optical, where they guide you as the intensity of the color, they're filling the diamond, it's a histogram, or it's actually a number. So you can give immediate feedback on most defibrillators through the software. And as soon as the defibrillator sees the compression waveform, it'll now start to give you the feedback. And it'll give you depth. There is a metronome. You can have audio feedback, you can have visual feedback, and you can have both of them going simultaneously. Great. The paramedics tend to turn the audio off because if you can imagine you're in Shoppers Drug Mart or the Eaton Center, it's so noisy that the audio just overwhelms them. But in the eMERGE, where it's a much more controlled situation, the metronome might actually be helpful in keeping your staff right on the money for rate, and then they can focus visually for depth. Great. So this is all on most defibrillators. That brings up the rate. So what is the optimal rate? I understand that's changed in the new guidelines as well. Yeah, so the optimal rate's also changed. It used to be uh, anything greater than 100 compressions per minute. But now we have more data that shows the optimal rate is ranging between 100 to 120 compressions per minute. So yeah, I, I read a study that they they concluded that 110 was the optimal rate. Should right. that be kind of the rate we should be going for? I think so. I think if you could set your metronome to 110, that would be, be that would be perfect. Great. So that's what I've been doing. I just use my my iPhone. I have an app that has a metronome, and I put it next to the compressor, and I tell them just try and go by this. But I'm actually kind of amazed that it's the musicians seem to be able to do it right mm-hmm. to the beat. But uh, a lot of people actually have trouble. So I think it's something that's you know if you're ever going to be doing chest compressions in the emergency department or otherwise. You should maybe practice practice doing those chest compressions when you do your ACLS courses uh, um, at, at 110. Right. And it, it's amazing, actually, Anton, you bring up something that's bothered me for years, in that EMS converted in 2010 to defibrillators with feedback, with m- the, the ability to measure the quality of their compressions and to give them visual or auditory feedback on their performance at point of care. But when they arrive in the ED, you're operating in a void. You take off the paramedics' devices and you put on your own, and invariably, you don't have any feedback. So you just took off the best device you could, and then you continue. And it's always bothered me. Yeah, so, I mean, I know next time I go into the emergency department, I'm going to go to the defibrillators and make sure that they're set to uh, have the audio metronome on at 110 and have the visual compression. Mm-hmm. And again, five to six centimeters of depth is what we're, is what the new goal is. And the new goal in terms of rate is 110. 
Well, the evidence for the optimal rate and the optimal depth comes out of the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium papers that are based on hundreds or at least thousands of patients. And so the level of evidence is still observational. Now, what about the 30 to 2 chest compression to ventilation ratio? Uh, Is this still considered optimal? It is considered optimal. The Seattle group has the highest survival rate in the world. So just to give you some numbers, in the city of Toronto right now, our all-comer survival rate is about 13%. For comparison value, in 2004, when we published the ORBIT trial, the all-comer survival rate was verging on 2%. Wow. So That's what, a 600% increase? Right. So the emphasis of the 2010 guidelines, the 2005 took away stack chocks. So it took away all our interruptions related to defibrillation. 2010 came along and the emphasis there was on CPR quality and monitoring CPR quality and the emphasis on chest compression. And that's where you actually see this massive bump up. So as the eMERGE docs, you will see more and more patients coming in from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a ROSC because the quality of the CPR is so good. And that's why our survival rate's gone from 2 to 13. Meanwhile, Seattle's been a flat line, and their survival rate sits at between 19 and 20% all comers. When you look at the VF cohort, which is probably where you and I have the best chance of saving someone, is when it's a witness, a bystander witnessed cardiac arrest whose initial rhythm was VF. The survival rate in Toronto right now is about 34%. So it's very high. In 2004, it was 8 So it's hugely changed because of the quality of CPR. But concomitantly, the Seattle has again had a flat line, and their survival rate at VF is 44%. Wow. I, when I'm like 70 years old, I'm moving to Seattle. Moving to Seattle. Drink a lot of coffee and wait for Seattle fire to come. But the difference uh, in what they do, because that's the beauty of collaborating with them on a clinical trial network, which Rock is, the Canadian participating sites got to see what the Seattle site does. And the differences are they do continuous compressions. So they never stopped to ventilate. So they abandoned 30 to 2. Years ago, they abandoned 30 to 2. They do continuous compressions. And on the 10th compression, as the compressor comes off the chest, the guy on the head quickly vents 500 cc's. It's a tiny little puff of ventilation into the chest, and the compressor goes down for the 11th compression. And they do that continuously. And the only time they stop is to deliver a shock. Otherwise, it's continuous. So is that what you suggest we should be doing when the patient comes into the ED initially? Yes. My gut feeling is continuous compressions for all that I see in the pre-hospital and in the ED. If you can just focus, I loved what you said about put the app beside them and just focus all their attention on compressing. If you can focus that, you'll decrease your interruptions. And I personally think it gives us the best circulation in brain and heart. I think so too. So I think Anything that you can do to prevent any interruptions to CPR, you can maintain high forward flow to the brain, to the heart, good coronary perfusion pressures, good carotid flows. I think that's what's going to save these patients. Okay. Now, what about the pulse check? We want to do continuous CPR. What about this pulse check? I mean, sometimes it takes five seconds, 10 seconds for a pulse check. Uh, You can use point-of-care ultrasound that might be a bit faster, might be a bit slower, might be a bit more accurate. Your team's going. We've got this 67-year-old. You've done two minutes of CPR. You've given epinephrine, and you stop for a pulse check. How do we do a pulse check in a way that minimizes that pause in chest compressions? So the guidelines say that after you complete two minutes of chest compressions or five rounds of chest compressions, you would pause, check the rhythm to see whether you have a perfusing rhythm. 
if you have a perfusing rhythm, then you could perform a pulse check. So the pulse checks can be done either at the carotid artery or the femoral artery, and you have less than 10 seconds to decide whether you feel a pulse or not. If you don't feel that pulse, you need to get right back onto the chest and start your chest compressions again. So I just want to make it clear that pulse checks are only for patients with an organized rhythm. If after two minutes of chest compressions, you notice a patient is in VF or they in a, if they're in asystole, you should go straight to either shocking the patient or right back onto the chest doing chest compressions. So you would only do pulse checks if you see an organized rhythm after you hold chest compressions. You should have the most experienced person at feeling pulses, which could be the physician or the nurse, checking for the pulse. However, we've moved well beyond checking femoral pulses and checking carotid pulses. There are many other devices now that can help you check for a ROSC much sooner. You could use entitled CO2, uh, monitoring to see whether there's a spike in entitled CO2, or you could even use ultrasound. So bedside ultrasound, where you place the probe away from the chest compressor so you don't interrupt chest compressions, but you can monitor what, uh, what the heart is doing once you pause for a rhythm check, and then you can actually check for a pulse simultaneously using either ultrasound, entitled CO2. But for those who don't have that type of technology right now and are still doing pulse checks using a manual pulse checks, it should be fingers on the femoral pulse during CPR so you know exactly where the pulse is. And once you stop chest compressions, someone can quickly tell you whether a pulse is present or not. So I'm just trying to think of the practicalities here. Would you suggest then having a person dedicated to having their hand on the pulse in the groin the entire time CPR is being done and they're ready to feel for that pulse as soon as CPR is stopped and a person with ultrasound ready to go straight in there? I mean, again, you know, we, we were talking about how even just a couple of seconds of stopping CPR can precipitously drop perfusion mm-hmm. to all the vital organs. I mean, it seems crazy that we're waiting up to 10 seconds. Yeah, I think 10 seconds is way too long. I think if you have enough manpower at the bedside, there should be one person dedicated to feeling for femoral pulse. If there's someone who is qualified to use the bedside ultrasound to have it placed uh, substernal, looking at the heart, so when chest compressions stop, you can assess for a pulse or cardiac activity fairly quickly, well below the 10-second cutoff. I think the key piece here is do it quickly. Experienced person on the groin, less than five seconds. We do the exact same thing. We time them as less than five seconds to see if it's VF or not. It's not a lot there. There's either a pulse or it's not, or it's VF or it's not. And it's five seconds off the chest for both. And you have to be definitive. So if you feel the pulse, yes or no, there is no maybe here. If it's a maybe, it's a no. And you can start chest compressions again. Frankly, because of its lack of reliability, even in experienced individuals, it is my personal opinion and the way when I'm resuscitating in the out-of-hospital setting, I literally ignore pulse check and compress until they wake up. And that's the way we train the medics. We don't stop for pulse checks. We stop to shock. We stop to assess for shock. Nothing else we stop for. Wow, that that's sort of a revolutionary idea to... Tell me more. So again, well, the, the pulse idea... check is irrelevant. To be honest, to whether they have a pulse or not, if they're not opening their eyes, if they're not making trying to make respiratory efforts, the pulse is inadequate. So if there's no sign of life, and you just think you feel a pulse in the groin or the neck, that's not enough to keep the heart and the brain going. So we just get back on the chest and compress. You can see them breathe. Yeah, You can see them making respiratory efforts. That means you are perfusing the brain and you're perfusing the heart. So do you really need to check the groin? I would probably keep compressing and ask the nurse to see if she can get a palpable blood pressure. Because if you can't get a palpable blood pressure, even if you can feel some sort of pulse in the groin, I would not stop. Because you're making headway. You have signs of life. Yeah, And when you add on entitled CO2, which I know you're going to next, then there's so much information available. Why would you waste time on a pulse check? 
We train the paramedics, and I think the Emerge could learn a lot from the way we train the paramedics in that we train them like a NASCAR tire change. Is everyone has a job by the bedside, similar to their approach in trauma. When trauma comes in, we all know we go the right, left, we're on the arm, the leg, blah, 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 the head. And in cardiac arrest, we should treat it exactly the same. That's the way the medics do it. They run it like a tire change. They know exactly the role they must play. And if there's two of them there, they know what is the priority role. If there's three, they know what the third person does. If four come on scene, they do the fourth. And we know from our Again, another observational study that came from Rock. The more people you have on the cardiac arrest, the greater chance it is for survival. And that's because everybody has a role. There's a lot of people to spare off, and the quality of CPR never suffers throughout the entire event. Wow. That's an incredible. There's observational data that shows that the mm-hmm. more people who are involved in the cardiac arrest, you know, it's, it's funny. I've, I've asked my chief to make it mandatory to have two physicians at every resuscitation. Um, and there's a lot of resistance to that. Uh, you know, there's this whole idea that we should be cowboys and we can handle anything in the emergency department on our own. But that's fascinating that it actually increases survival, or at least the observational data shows that it increases survival if the more people you have uh, with each person being dedicated to a particular task. It sounds like we have some work for our simulation experts in emergency medicine to start training people more specifically to have specific tasks at cardiac arrests. In the old days, remember when we used to take ACLS courses, they used to focus on leadership, team leadership, but now it's on the team itself. So everybody on the team has got to know their role. It's just not enough to spend all the time and energy developing the ED physician lead or the nurse nurse lead for a code team. It's really important to train the team so they can literally do it in their sleep and know exactly what they need to do. I think you hit a good point. Simulation training is probably the best way to go in terms of optimizing a cardiac arrest team whenever one occurs in the emergency department. There's a great study to that effect, actually. In pediatric cardiac arrest in the United States, they randomized hospitals, cluster randomization, where they randomized hospitals for pizza hospitals, to simulation codes which were spontaneous. Nothing about training sessions. They occurred spontaneously at the discretion of the investigator throughout 24-7, seven days of the week, 365. And in the other hospital, they did nothing except ACLS annual updates. And the difference is dramatically different. The quality of CPR was better and the survival outcomes were better in the ones where the team was being trained constantly through random simulations that occurred throughout the hospital. Great. Yeah. There's also that amazing little study that they just did with pediatric resuscitations where they pre-filled the syringes with epinephrine and all the key resuscitation medications, and they marked on the syringe the different colors that corresponded to the Braslau tape uh, so that they didn't have to think about dosages at all. All they did was push the syringe right up to that color. They have shown a decreased drug error uh, and a decreased time to give the medication. You see, cardiac arrest is time-sensitive. And you can improve the quality of a time-sensitive intervention by training, but you can also include it by making at the bedside the right thing to do, the easiest thing to do. So the color-coded syringes, that is making, that's like a perfect knowledge translation tool. You make the right thing to do, the absolutely easiest thing to do. They just have to push to a color code. So that, in essence, is exactly what they do in a NASCAR tire change. And that's how we train the medics in those same ways. Right thing to do, easiest thing to do. You don't have to think about it. You just go to your position on the team and do it. So we can learn from the pilots for cognitive decision-making, and we can learn from the NASCAR race car driver team people how to do procedural things. Definitely. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about determining return of spontaneous circulation 
and getting a pulse back using N-tidal CO2. Can you explain to us what the guidelines are suggesting in terms of using the N-tidal CO2 to determine Roski? Yeah, so since 2010, the American Heart Guidelines actually mandate that N-tidal CO2 capnography is necessary to determine whether you're performing sufficient CPR or whether you have a return on spontaneous circulation. And in fact, it was the it was also the gold standard for whether you'd intubated correctly. So you had to see capnographic evidence on the defibrillator of whether you were you had intubated correctly, and then you had to use capnographic evidence for the quality of your CPR. So my understanding is that the numbers have changed from 2010 to 2015 in terms of the goals for end-tidal CO2 for the three different things that they're required for. Number one is to confirm intubation. Number two is to confirm adequate chest compressions. And number three is to confirm return of spontaneous circulation. So end-tidal CO2 is fantastic. It's mandated. Could you tell our audience what the goals are for end-tidal CO2 for those three different things? So when a patient is intubated, Using end-tidal CO2, if you can see through waveform capnography an increase in your reading, then that helps you confirm that you have placed your endotracheal tube correctly. If your end-tidal CO2 is less than 10, you're not performing good enough CPR. You might need to improve your rate as well as improve your depth to aiming for a end-tidal CO2 of greater than 12 to 15. When you see a spike in your entitled CO2 to anywhere between 35 to 40 or even higher, it indicates that you might have had a ROSC during CPR. And it gives you an idea as you finish off your two minutes of CPR, whether you would expect to have a return on spontaneous circulation. And my understanding is that you can use entitled CO2 as one of the determinants of when to give up on a patient and stop your resuscitation, but we'll talk about that later when we talk about uh, how to determine when to stop your resuscitation. We train the paramedics, actually, Anton. We train them when they look at end-tidal CO2. If the end-tidal CO2 suddenly surges, not to stop compressions. That just tells you there's cellular ROSC. Because remember what you're measuring here. You're measuring a gas exchange. So that just means the cells are exchanging gases and you're getting clearly an emission of CO2 at a higher rate, right? So that gives you, uh, I always say to them when I'm training people on simulators, I say that rising end-tidal CO2 is telling you're doing a great job in CPR and the cells are recovering, but do not stop the cell accumulates end-tidal CO2 as it's dying. So as there's better gaseous exchange, oxygen comes in, CO2 goes out. The increase in CO2 that is expired through the lung is indicative that the cell's having a proper gaseous exchange at the cellular level. So a rise in end-tidal CO2 in cardiac arrest is determined as good cell revival. I just want to move back a little bit to decreasing any pause in chest compressions, and talk about the peri-shock pause. So Dr. Morrison, how can we minimize the peri-shock pause? So we've got our patient uh, in VF. What I've tried to do myself, and I'm sure there's no evidence for this, but what I do is I ask the compressor to count down from 10, what do you suggest to our listeners for the way to minimize the perishock pause? And would you recommend, in particular, continuous CPR without taking the hands off and shocking anyways? So that's two good questions. So the first is a perishock pause is comprised of the pre-shock and the post-shock pause. The post-shock pause is essentially eliminated in 2010 because all of us get right back on the chest after shock. So they we're only really concerned now in shortening the pre-shock pause. And the pre-shock pause can be absolutely the shortest possible, as you just described. You can count down. Another way to do it is you take your hands off and look for five seconds to see if they need a shock. So that's the one, two, three, four, five. You get to determine if it's VF or not. And if it's VF or not, 
you tell them to get right back on the chest. And what we do is we count 15 compressions. So we do 15 compressions after confirmed VF. And then we shock them exactly as you described. So they're at three, two, one, hands off shock. There is a group in the UK that is looking at shocking during compressions now. And there is a published paper in which experimental evidence would suggest that with gloves on in an experimental condition using a mannequin, uh, where the shock is registered going through the pa- through the individual doing the compressing, that it is similar to household current. So there is a move afoot to try to not interrupt at all. Uh, but we're not anywhere near putting that in the guidelines yet. There's a video you can see on the web. It's YouTube or something. It's Seattle doing a simulation. Mm-hmm. Literally, they're off the chest for less than a second for a shock. That's it. Okay, we'll and try- that's the optimal for all of us. ED, ICU, in the out-of-hospital setting. So there's chest compressions and there's chest compressions. We know that a certain rate and depth is ideal and we want to minimize interruptions. What about all these machines that are available out there? Uh, There's these impedance threshold devices. There's active compression, decompression, CPR, phased thoracic abdominal compression, decompression, CBR with a handheld device, piston devices, load distributing band devices. There's all these different toys that we can use. Uh, instead of human hands just doing plain old CPR, what does the evidence tell us about how these toys compare to good old chest compressions by hand? So all of them have been compared in randomized control trials against high-quality manual compressions. None of them have showed any superiority over high-quality manual compressions. And that's the gist of it. So it doesn't matter whether you are a load distributing band or a piston. Just to clarify the names for you, the autopulse is a load distributing band and the piston is the Lucas device. And both of those have been trialed in, it's up to three different randomized control trials now, and none of them have showed any superiority against high quality manual CPR. Okay, so that's what the RCTs show Now, we had just talked about continuous CPR and how that's so important. It just makes intuitive sense to me that if you have a machine doing continuous CPR through the shocks, through everything, that that would be better. So why do you think it is that the RCTs are showing that they're no better, even though it kind of makes intuitive sense that they would be? So first of all, when you use these devices, you have to start with compressions only by manual for all of them. So the earliest part of a cardiac arrest, which is pivotally the most important in predicting who's going to live or die, it's manual in both arms, whether you're putting on a device or not. So early, high-quality manual compressions are in both arms of the trial. Then you have trained them again, like a NASCAR tire change, in order for you to put these devices on quickly. And that's the key because you stop everything to put the device on. So a highly trained team who can do high quality manual compressions can also be trained in the intervention arm to do fast and slick application of a device. And when you compare that versus high quality manual, there's no difference in superiority. If you cannot perform high quality CPR for whatever reason, then it is reasonable to use a mechanical CPR device. So I'll give can you, you an us example. An example? Yeah, I give, give you an example, Anton. I was going to say great minds think alike, but your mind is so much greater <laughs> no, than mine that I can't even really use that. <laughs> so Orange, there was a, a media got a hold of some information and tried to say that the configuration of the helicopter impeded the delivery of good CPR. Mm, So for our international listeners, Orange is our province-wide air ambulance service. And in fact, it was hard in this small cabin of the helicopter to get over the chest and give high-quality CPR. Under those circumstances, a mechanical device may be the perfect thing because it fits the cabin well. And all we need to really do is train them how to be slick, how to get it on properly and quickly. So my understanding is that that's exactly what it says in the guidelines, is that it's just those situations where 
physically speaking that you actually can't get in there to do manual CPR, that that's when they do recommend using machines. You asked about the impedance threshold device. So ah, the impedance yes. threshold device is a circulatory device. It's actually applied to the endotracheal tube or the BVM, but it actually increases perfusion to the right side of the heart so that when you, the compressor comes down, there's something in the bag to push out. So that's what the ITD showed, and the Rock Consortium did a large randomized control trial. Tom Ofterheide was the lead. Um, where they randomized patients to the ITD or a sham ITD device, and they showed no superiority of the use of the ITD. Okay. And just to clarify for our listeners, any financial or potential conflicts of interest with any of these uh, toys that we've been talking about? No financial conflicts of interest with any of the toys. Nope. No, no conflicts with the toys as well. Okay. All right, let's move on to talk about antiarrhythmics in the peri-arrest period. So let's say our patient is now in VF and we've shocked the patient. You continue chest compressions, you give epi, but they remain in V-fib. You repeat the shock again, more chest compressions, and you're sure that this time they'll convert, but alas, they're still in V-fib. So now we're in a refractory V-fib situation. What's your next move? Do you eliminate the perishock pause? Do you do dual shock? Do you do esmolol? Do you try amiodarone, lidocaine? I understand that the guidelines, the algorithm and the guidelines suggest amiodarone. Dr. Lin, I understand that you have a special sub-interest in research in antiarrhythmics in cardiac arrest. What's your next move? We're in refractory V-fib. What do you do? Thanks, Anton. So I'm actually the one who reviewed the evidence for, for the guidelines on this actual topic. There's been no new evidence uh, for the use of antiarrhythmics in cardiac arrest since the 2010 guidelines. And so for the update, nothing has really changed. We're still suggesting that amiodarone is given. However, there's been no studies ever published that show amiodarone or any other antiarrhythmic has changed any long-term survival outcomes. So after receiving multiple shocks, uh, and the patient remaining in refractory VF, the first line still remains amiodarone, 300 milligrams IV bolus. What can you tell me about the real evidence for using amiodarone that the guidelines are suggesting? So there's only been one RCT that looked at amiodarone versus placebo. And that was done in Seattle by Peter Kuninchuk, and that was published in the late 90s. And both arms had a lidocaine bailout. However, in saying that, there is a very large North American trial that's going on right now called ALPS. So that's the amiodarone versus lidocaine versus placebo trial. And that's a pre-hospital trial that's randomizing thousands of patients and they're receiving, in a blinded fashion, amiodarone, lidocaine, or placebo. And the trial is currently ongoing. And just to clarify, this is for BFib arrests. Yes, in, in patients with refractory VF arrest. Okay. So there is a trial that might tell us something. I just want to go back. So in terms of, let's just go through the different ones. In amiodarone, that's based on a single study from the 90s? In amiodarone, there's a one single trial published in the late 90s, which also means that different CPR guidelines, different CPR ratios. And so it's a very old study itself, which may not be very relevant in today's resuscitation world. There's actually two RCTs in, in the world literature testing amiodarone. Steve's right. There's only one that tested against placebo. But in both those arms, as I mentioned, they'd used a lidocaine bailout if they, if they were refractive mm. to both drug and placebo. But there's a second paper by Paul Dorian, a Torontonian, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, another randomized trial of 500 patients who were randomized by Toronto EMS to amiodarone versus lidocaine. And just like the Seattle trial, both trials showed that there was increased ROSC with amiodarone over placebo and amiodarone over lido. So amiodarone had increased ROSC. But the survival at discharge was the same for both groups. Okay, so that's, that's the key. That's the pivotal message because 
you you may get more ROSC and more organized rhythm where you get the refractive VF to stop and re- they can regain their pulse. But for some rate, the people who got amiodarone died at a faster rate in hospital. So the end point of survival to discharge was the same in all groups, amiodarone, lido, and placebo. And it's for that reason that there's scientific and community equipoise that allowed us to do the Rock Alps trial. And it should be out within January, February. The good thing about the 2015 guidelines is now it's a website. So no longer will we wait five years for a new guidelines. It's going to be an interactive website such that when the Rock Alps trial is published in early 2016, they'll be able to instantaneously update that on the website so everyone will know the answer to that question. Great. I'm looking forward to that one. So amiodarone may improve ROS compared to lidocaine or placebo, and that's why it's still in the guidelines for refractory VFib. What about the idea of a dual shock? So I understand that there's some small study that shows that in patients in refractory V-fib arrest, that placing two defibrillators on the patient and shocking at the same time will actually potentially bring them back to life. What's your take on that study? And should we be attempting dual shock therapy for VFib arrest that's refractory to a one shock after another after another? So that's a really good question. So there are case series now mm-hmm. uh, that looks at double defibrillation where they have the pads in the traditional sternum apex as well as the anterior-posterior position. And these patients who are refractory to multiple defibrillations, uh, they're getting these double defibrillations and they're seeing positive outcomes in terms of ROSC. And I believe there's only one patient that was described actually having survival to hospital discharge. Uh, It's definitely not well studied. However, there are a lot of theories behind why this actually works. So whether there's increased joules and increased energy during the defibrillation, which might help the heart reset itself and get uh, and get ROSC, or whether there's different vectors of energy, one going AP, the other one going more horizontal, and actually helping the patient achieve ROSC again, or this is all by chance. So whether you waited eight shocks and the ninth shock might have worked, or whether the really double defibrillation actually works. That actually reminds me of the positioning of the pads. I prefer using the AP. It just makes more sense to sandwich the the heart from the front and back. Uh, What does the evidence show in terms of what the best pad position is? So there isn't any good quality evidence that would compare those two. The consensus opinion around the table of the electrophysiologists and emergency physicians who review this science have concluded that the anterior, the superior, and the lateral positioning of the pads is the fastest way to go. It's all about interruptions. So to actually flip and get onto the back and turn the patient over to position the pads is considered a no-no because that involves interruptions. Ah. So place them on the front and don't stop. So for cardiac arrest patients, Dr. Morrison, you're suggesting the traditional anterior pad placement. And for patients who are not in cardiac arrest, let's say we're cardiovering them out of AFib or, or something like that, and they're relatively stable, then we can choose either one. That's correct. Okay. Could I just comment on that double shock? So it's interesting because we've had a few cases in Toronto recently where the paramedics, the ALS medics arrived with a second defibrillator and they have done this and uh, they, these three individuals have survived. And so they're thinking about writing them up as cases because we have all their CPR quality data. It's just interesting because I started to look at the science. There was a randomized control trial. It was done like 1989 by Bardi, where they randomized patients to this double sequential, they call it, and showed no difference. So it's small. It's a small RCT, but it showed no difference. Okay. So for the evidence-based folks out there, there's no good evidence for dual shock therapy for refractory V-fib. Now, Dr. Lin... You're in the trenches, you're on an overnight shift, it's three in the morning, 
50-year-old guy, collapses, defib arrest. You shock him, maximal joules. You shock him again. You're running your code like a, a master clinician, and you're on your third or fourth shock. What are you going to do? So that's a very good question. So I think at that point, the guidelines are just guidelines, right? When you're in the trenches and you have that patient who is very sick in front of you, you have to do what you think is best. And if you've exhausted all your other options, why not give the double defibrillation a chance? Just a one kind favor I'll ask you, allow me just one more chance. So let's get back to the case. Luck would have it that after you've confirmed tube placement and achieved ROSC, the patient loses their pulse again, and your resident says she's in PEA at a rate of 45. You decide to restart chest compressions and ask for epinephrine one amp. Let's talk about vasopressors and cardiac arrest. So the evidence for any real benefit of giving epinephrine and cardiac arrest every three to five minutes, according to the guidelines, is pretty weak. In fact, when Ilcor looked at the evidence for epinephrine, they found that for all important long-term and short-term outcomes, there was only one underpowered trial that provided low-quality evidence of any significant benefit. This single study of about 500 patients did show that patients who received epinephrine had higher rates of the two important short-term outcomes of survival to admission and ROSC in the pre-hospital setting. So we have no good long-term evidence that we're doing anything good for our cardiac arrest patients with epinephrine. We just keep them alive for long enough to get them admitted to hospital, essentially. So my first question then is, should we be giving epinephrine at all? So the evidence for epi is exactly the same quality of evidence as it is for amiodarone. There are RCTs, but both of them show only short-term benefit with epi, which, as you just alluded, is ROSC and survival to arrive alive in the ED. But none of the trials have been able to show that epinephrine in, during the arrest makes a difference in long-term outcome. And there is concern in large observational studies done by the Japanese that it actually may be harmful and it may compromise neurological recovery. Can you just explain a bit of the physiology of how epinephrine could be harmful? Well, it's just it's vasoconstrictive and it may not provide enough perfusion to the brain during cardiac arrest. And so you may get the heart back, but you've lost the brain. Okay, I, I like that. That's a good, simple way of thinking about it. So the next question I have then is, if you are going to use epinephrine, according to the guidelines, when should we be giving epinephrine? You should give epinephrine early. So that's why the emphasis should be on compressions and putting the AED on if you have two people by the bedside. But if you have more than that, it should be on quick IV access and get the drug in. And the reasons are is because in the randomized control trials, both of the antiarrhythmics and the epinephrine, the time to first drug is long. For example, in the amiodarone studies, the time to first drug is 23 minutes after onset of cardiac arrest. So if you remember your beautiful sinusoidal curve of survival and cardiac arrest, the first four minutes are pivotal. And so the first four are called the defibrillation cycle. The next six up to 10 minutes are called the circulatory. And after that, 10 minutes to 20 is called the metabolic phase, where survival in the metabolic phase is less than 1%. So your big survival gains are early electricity and early drugs. Would it be theoretically possible then that the reason why we haven't showed that epinephrine is of any benefit is because we just haven't been giving it early enough? It could be, Anton, that's very insightful. It could be the timing of it being given is too late. The second thing is the dose could be wrong. That was perfectly exactly what I wanted to ask next. Mm. Um Scott Weingart has a podcast on titrating the dose of epinephrine according to end-title CO2. This is a fascinating concept to me. Yes, it complicates things, but I don't know. Do you think that Weingart has something there? What's your opinion in terms of at least the theoretic possibility um, and whether you think that it would be reasonable to try and whether you think that we're actually going to have any studies that shows us that it actually might work, that the second factor of giving epinephrine. We talked about the timing, now we're talking about the dose. Maybe we got the wrong dose of epinephrine. What's your opinion on that, Dr. Lin? Without any significant new evidence that's showing whether epinephrine works or not, my gut feeling is that we are using epinephrine 
incorrectly, whether we're using it too high of a dose or whether we're giving it too often or even maybe not often enough, that we actually need to titrate epinephrine for an end physiological need. Now, in Scott Weingart's podcast about entitled CO2, we have to totally believe that entitled CO2 is the actual physiological parameter that is linked to outcomes, which we do not know that's current. That's the fact. So whether there's a better physiological parameter that we should actually be titrating epinephrine to, the jury is still out. There are new technologies out there that look at brain oxygenation, right? one of which is near-infrared spectroscopy. And that might be the technology that shows whether when you give epinephrine, do you actually increase or decrease brain oxygenation? And maybe that's the physiological marker we should be aiming for. Just so we don't confuse the listeners. So internal CO2 is an excellent physiological marker of quality of CPR and whether or not they've got an early ROSC. But we don't know if it is a good physiological marker for whether epi is working. That's what we don't know. And some think that oxygenation, true oxygenation, which can be reported by a NEARS device, may be a better marker of whether we need more or less epinephrine. But the bottom line is we just don't know what to titrate to. And what's the feeling? Are, are we generally, is a feeling amongst these epinephrine dose adjuster theorists that we're giving too much epi in general, or is it we're not giving enough epi in general? What, what's the feeling there? So I think in general, I think we're giving too much epi. Giving one milligram dose might be too high in itself, and giving it every three minutes, three to five minutes, might be too frequent. So what we know from the animal lab is that once you give your first dose of epinephrine at one milligram, you increase your cerebral blood flow, and then it precipitously drops below baseline shortly after that. So maybe that's the main reason why there's decreased blood flow to the brain. Although you improve coronary perfusion and get a ROSC, these patients are not surviving out of the hospital. If you suspect a cardiac cause for the arrest, would that change your mind in terms of using epinephrine or not? As opposed to if someone has, a, if, if it sounds like they had a bleed in the head or mm. sometimes we can get a good history and within a few minutes, we have a pretty good idea of what the diagnosis might be that caused the arrest. Would that diagnosis make you change your mind about whether to give epi or how much epi, epinephrine to give? So I think you nailed this right on the head. In a VF or pulses VTAC arrest, most of these patients are having cardiac ischemia. When you're giving them a milligram of epinephrine, you're putting so much strain onto the heart by increasing all the resistance in all the vessels that you imagine being causing more damage to the heart, more damage to the brain, and these patients will not survive. However, in non-shockable rhythms, the causes are vastly different. And so maybe epinephrine for these particular patients are actually very helpful. Which brings us to the point of the timing of epinephrine. In patients with non-shockable rhythms, the earlier you give epinephrine to these patients, the better they do. And that's actually included in the guidelines for this round of updates. Okay, so for PEA arrest and asystole, we should be giving epinephrine as early as possible according to the guidelines. There may be some data coming out in the future that may show that the dose might be too big. And that maybe with these new ways of measuring physiology of brain perfusion, that we may be doing dose adjusted for each patient. Exactly. Maybe, you know, we can, a decade from now, we won't be giving a milligram every three to five. We'll be running a drip where we can modify the drip infusion against a physiological measure. That would be ideal. Changing cardiac arrest resuscitation to goal-directed therapy, I think that would be the perfect situation for us. There's a trial ongoing right now, Anton, in the UK, which I think is unfortunate in that it is a pragmatic trial of epinephrine versus placebo in the pre-hospital setting. And the problem is they're trialing a milligram given every three to five to nothing. And so my worry is that it's going to show nothing. It's going to show no superiority, and therefore it's going to give credence to throwing out a drug that potentially 
in all the animal labs to this day have shown an increased ROSC. Mm. So my worry is we're going to sh- throw the baby out with the bathwater before we really got the right dose and the right way to give it and the right m- way to measure its outcome. Right. I just want to say that you go- I respect you guys so much for being able to do this really difficult research. I mean, through this whole conversation we've been having, it is really tough to try and dissect out what we should really be doing. You know, a lot of this stuff has very little evidence. Mm-hmm. And then not only that, but not only the research that you're doing, but then you've got to actually sit down at a table with other researchers and other experts and then decide what to tell the world to do. Um, and then you have the challenge of telling them whether to keep it simple or to make it more complicated based on shady evidence. Okay, so we've talked about epinephrine. Let's talk about vasopressin. Um, I understand that there was a JAMA study in 2013 that suggested that vasopressin, steroids, and epinephrine may be preferred over epinephrine alone. Now, this is a very controversial topic. I also understand that vasopressin has been thrown out of these 2015 guidelines. What's your take on using vasopressin as an alternative to epinephrine? And what's your take on using the combination of vasopressin steroids and epinephrine compared to just epinephrine alone? My opinion would be for the emergency department and for the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest world, we should not be using vasopressin. Number one, it's hard to draw up as opposed to the pre-filled syringes that we have for epinephrine. And the evidence shows that there is no superiority for vasopressin over epinephrine. So I think the evidence is clear. And because of those reasons, vasopressin was removed from the algorithm for simplicity's sake and for better uptake. But in the in-hospital cardiac arrest world, vasopressin potentially can still play an important role mainly because of the study that you just mentioned. So in 2013, a large Greek multi-centered study looked at a bundle of care of vasopressin, steroids, and epi compared to epinephrine alone and showed a fairly impressive and significant improvement in all clinical outcomes. I think the general consensus across the resuscitation community is until it can be replicated by an RCT that addresses some of the methodological issues, that it will not be standard of care. Let's move on to the airway. We've touched on a few little airway issues, but I want to really get deep into airway here. First, how quickly do we need to secure the airway in cardiac arrest? There's been this emphasis on circulation first, And we know we can delay the airway, but how long can we delay it? In the current CCC trial, the one that I mentioned that will come out in November, at this large randomized control trial, in fact, we deferred the advanced airway for six minutes. So three complete two-minute sessions before the paramedic would even reach for a supraglottic or an endotracheal tube. And... What you see with that, uh, although this is unpublished, but what I saw from my own data contributing to that trial is that where many patients achieved ROSC and therefore never required an advanced airway because six minutes of good CPR up front and rapid defibrillation when appropriate saved a lot of lives. So our intubation rate, I think, will go down with the deferral of the advanced airway over time. Yeah, and I completely agree. The short answer to that is you don't need to get an airway if you're able to bag the patient well. If you could bag the patient well, you minimize all interruptions to chest compressions altogether, and you can manage that patient's airway just with the BVM alone. Okay, so oral airway, chin lift, jaw thrust, good bag valve mask, two people, one person with a two-hand grip on the BVM with a good jaw thrust, and the second person concentrating on bagging the patient. The guidelines suggest that that's as good as a supraglottic airway or endotracheal intubation in the cardiac arrest patient. Yes, exactly. We've been talking about the ever-so-important minimizing a pause in chest compressions. When it comes to intubating the patient, let's say for whatever reason you need to intubate the patient. How can we minimize the pause in chest compressions when it comes to that time that it takes to intubate a patient? 
during chest compressions, the laryngoscope can actually be placed in the mouth and you can identify the actual glottis. And during the time when you do a rhythm check, it gives you about 5 to 10 seconds to actually place the endotracheal tube because you already have your view in sight. But if you could intubate during chest compressions, then that would be perfect. So let's say you do have to intubate. What about oxygenation in cardiac arrest? On the one hand, we have a patient who's in cardiac arrest. There's no oxygen circulating in their blood pretty much, and uh, you want to get them oxygenated. On the other hand, there's this idea recently that hyperoxia can be detrimental. During the whole cardiac arrest process from when they come in until the post-arrest phase, how should we be thinking about oxygenating our patients? So during the cardiac arrest phase, it's hard to know how much oxygen is actually in the patient's blood because all our traditional O2 sat monitors don't function properly at low flow states. So the guidelines agree with this, that you should always continue to use 100% oxygen or high flow oxygen during the cardiac arrest phase. Now, once the patient gets a ROSC, then you have physiological monitoring for these patients. So the O2 sat monitor can be placed and you can titrate the oxygen that way. So once they have a ROSC, you should titrate your oxygen down to 94% and maintain at that to prevent hyperoxia, which we know is detrimental in the long term. There was so much great stuff in my conversation with Dr. Lin and Dr. Morrison that I needed to split it into two episodes. We'll continue our conversation in the very next episode, part two, with more cardiac arrest nuggets of wisdom and what we need to know in 2015 about post-arrest care. We'd love to hear your opinions on cardiac arrest care controversies in the comment section on the website. And don't forget that registration for the first ever EM Cases course in the new year will be open by mid-November. Just go to emergencymedicinecases.com to sign up before the limited number of spots sell out. Hope to see some of you at ASEP, the teaching course in New York City, and the Emergency Department Administrators Conference EDAC in November. So until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 